Have you tried Music to Code by yet? Well, why not? Here's a comment Joe left on the website. This is also great music to mow by. I like listening to music while doing yard work to help the monotony of it seem less tedious. This past summer, I started listening to these tracks while doing yard work, and they worked great. I could let the music play in the background without focusing on it, and it seemed to help me concentrate on getting through my tasks. Thanks, Joe. And you know, now you can download the entire 13-track collection. That's over five and a half hours of music to code by for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1388, recorded Thursday, December 8th, 2016. Welcome back. It's Carl and Richard. Hey, Richard. Hey, buddy. How are you? Oh, uh, you know, no rest for the wicked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us have been really, really wicked. You know, this has been a crazy year for yes. technology, for energy, for gadgetry. Oh, yeah. You know, it. Uh, I, I don't know. There's just so much stuff to talk about. Uh, I'm really glad that uh, an alert listener you know, picked out this topic and it got voted to the top of the stack. It didn't actually get voted to the top of the stack. I just wanted to do it. Ah, well, then it was <laughs> voted to the top of the stack, wasn't it? But before we dive into that, I got to plug something. You know okay. that I've been working with a, a startup called Signal FM. Yes, that's right. And uh, we are now, uh, they have got a prototype site up and they actually picked one of our shows, a geek out, the SpaceX Interplanetary Transport System, as a sample of what they're working on. Whoa. So it's at geekouts.xyz, which is a great domain name. I might just have to acquire that from them. But if you go to geekouts.xyz, you'll see just a, it's a placeholder website, but it sort of shows what's going on. Uh, because what they've got is a sort of live transcription service. So they've, ta- they've generated a transcript using IBM's Watson hmm. for that Geek Out episode. Wow. Which is not that weird. I mean, we've done transcripts for years. That's right. But the interesting part is that Watson gives them a millisecond by millisecond time mapping for everything in the transcript. Oh, wow. So that when you, you can clip, click on any word and it will jump to that point in the recording and start to play from there. That is cool. And so you actually see it highlight the words as they're being said. You know, I showed this to Mark Miller, and he went, you know, this activates two areas of the brain at once, your auditory complex and your visual complex at the same time, Mm. so it'll actually help you remember things more effectively. Mm -hmm. Not that I know if you want to remember a geek out, it's just really interesting to show it. So I thought I'd let people know, uh, yeah, geekouts.xyz, this is one of the things we've been experimenting with. Yep, so check it out and let us know what you think. Well, Richard, I also have something that's interesting for this week's Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? Bluetooth 5, baby. Uh, it's time, isn't it? It Bluetooth. is. 
Yeah, they're working on a new version of Bluetooth. It's not uh, here yet, but uh, it's coming. So if you go to 1388.pwop.me, here's an article by Engadget that talks about Bluetooth 5. And here's what it says, that it, they're focused mostly on performance. You can expect up to four times the range, twice the speed, and eight times the amount of data in broadcast messages. Awesome. Yeah, sorely needed. And this is really current. This is a, from a, the, the Bluetooth committee, like, released this yesterday, December right. 7th. We're recording this on the 8th. Yep, that's so right. This is right up to date. Yeah, and so it says those will be particularly helpful for smart appliances and the Internet of Things, where the existing Bluetooth 4.2 standard might not be powerful enough to connect an entire home. However, it should also make a difference anywhere that you notice Bluetooth's existing limitations. So smartwatches could see a serious upgrade. For example, one of the biggest bottlenecks on wristwear is the slow connection to your phone. Yeah. And I noticed that, you know, in the car, trying to watch a YouTube video, for example, when your audio is connected to your car Bluetooth, there's a lag. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because you're seeing the video on your phone as fast as possible, but then you have to hear it through your car, and there's a Bluetooth delay. That's interesting. Yeah. However, they say, and this is important, don't expect too much of a boost to audio quality. So while the speed... Uh, and the range is improved, you won't see improvements to audio compression, latency, and power until right. 2018. Oh, my. The newly adopted format is primarily about dragging Bluetooth's range and speed into the modern era, and future efforts will build on top of that groundwork. And this is just a ratified standard. So they haven't got chipsets yet. Yep. They haven't got them, certainly, in phones or anything. So yep. it's going to be a while. It's going to be a while. But at least they're moving forward. So, yeah, and they need to. They need to keep up with it. Yes, because people are really using Bluetooth these days. It's not just about headsets anymore. That's right. Exactly. So, we'll keep our eyes on that. Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed the obvious comment, the one that generated this show. This Mm. is a comment from 1364. Okay. The very same geek out I mentioned out with geekouts.xyz, the SpaceX Interplanetary Transport System geek out. Yep. uh, Back in October of 2016. And lots of comments. You know, I always respond to people. Uh, I always respond to people anyway, but especially on the Geek Out shows, they have a lot of questions. And uh, this particular one comes from Paul Bryant, uh, who said, uh, first, I'd like to say you guys are brilliant. I very much hope that you will continue to keep doing what you're doing for many more years. I hope so, too. Yeah. Are you taking requests for future Geek Outs? And how about one on the future energy options in general? There was a mention of orbital power stations on the show, yes, because I like, if we have a 500-ton lift rocket, mm-hmm. we can make space-based power work. Right. Uh, there is the various forms of nuclear fission and fusion that we've done in past Geek Outs. I think we've done all the alternative energy, right? Yes, we yeah. have. Well, Pretty much. Geothermal, solar, wind, like, yeah. what more do you want? We covered a lot. Mm-hmm. But how about a show that explores the escalating global need for energy and the likely future shortfall of fossil fuels in terms of cost-effective supply, not to mention the environmental issues? No, we should mention them, yes. Definitely. (laughs) I know there are a lot of nutcases out there in the peak oil community, but it seems to me, even given the low price of oil right now, that there might be some substance to the aspects of their hypothesis around perennial GDP growth being tied to a never-ending supply of cheap energy. Wow. That's an there, interesting thought. There but absolutely it, is a relationship to it, but we will talk about what cheap energy actually means. Yeah. Uh, do you think that there's any fear in the peak oil predictions, or is this all crazy talk? 
Do you think that there are realistic alternatives to fossil fuels that will be able to be developed in a short enough time frame to make them a viable alternative fuel, this planet full of people in the future? Yeah, well, peak oil was very popular in, in terms of a, uh, a scare before we became the second largest producer of oil in the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, understand that if you go back, peak, the peak oil concept came back in the 70s when OPEC constrained oil production on the U.S. as a punishment, right? This was a political battle. There wasn't a limitation on oil. That was not the problem. It was that they were angry. And yeah. so in that fight, they limited uh, oil availability and it drove oil prices up. And the side effect of that was the development of Gulf oil in a big way. I fact, pretty much the offshore oil business was created out of that energy crisis. Yeah. The yeah. Brent oil fields that have made the Norwegians as incredibly wealthy as he is. Like the, and the reality now that OPEC represents a third of world oil production. Yeah. Not the majority anymore. Yep. So. You know, while it was a scary time and there was this conversation of we're running out of oil, it's simply not the case. Sure. And sure. Uh, we'll go further into this as we talk about oil production as a whole because you can't talk about energy without talking about oil. Yeah. Uh, so, Paul, I said in the comments at the time, okay, I'll do this show. But what I didn't tell you was I was also going to send you a .NET Rocks mug. So, a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We eat them for energy. <laughs> Everybody needs energy. All right. So where do we start? Global energy. Oh, my God. That's a big topic. Well, and I've been keeping notes for a while as I watch all these different energy sources. I, I have been considering, should I do a show around coal all by itself? Yeah. Should I? Uh, I'm watching closely the fourth generation nuclear power that's been being developed. Um, which is an interesting story. We may spin off on its own show. I'm always watching all the alternative energies. What's happening in solar? What's happening in wind? You know, all these different techs that are moving along. Right. And the general shift of the grid away from centralized power generation to distributed power generation. Yeah. Like all these things are happening. But when confronted with the idea of can you talk about energy in the world as a whole up till more or less today, mm. it just meant I read a ton of papers. Yeah. So a lot of the data I'm going to present now comes from the International Energy Agency, which is a group of member nations. It's not everybody. It's actually, it's only like 25 countries. Okay. But it's most of the Western world. So the U.S., Canada, Australia, Western Europe, uh, Turkey's in there as well. But these are the you know major energy producers as yeah, well. Right. Although it does, you know, we talk about major energy producers. What's not included in IEA is. Saudi Arabia, Russia, mm. to, and uh, and China, all mm. very big energy producers. Although they have that data, they're not working at the same level. Yeah. So, uh, and I will talk about various sources as I go through this because I think it's important as to how you gather this kind of information. It is hard to make comprehensive measurements okay. about power consumption. So one of the things that's fun is you immediately have to go into these measurement approaches. For example, the, when we talk about the most bare measurement, like how much energy was consumed in 2016 by humanity? Oh, wow. That See, that sounds like a bare measurement. Yeah. But that's actually a great big spreadsheet right there. Well, if you want to break it down, it is. So the best number I've found so far is 590 quadrillion BTUs. 
<laughs> okay. Okay. Wow, that's a lot. That's, so what's <laughs> a BTU? Yeah. A BTU is a British thermal unit, which if you convert that into joules, it's 1,055 joules. That doesn't help anybody. No. So let's, you know what the actual measurement of a British thermal unit is? Uh, it's probably a match or something. It's, it, it, and actually, yeah, they would say, if you burn a single match completely, that's about a BTU. Yeah. It's actually the amount of energy or amount of work needed to raise the temperature of one pound of water by one degree Fahrenheit. Isn't that, f that sounds familiar. That's like a calorie, isn't it? Well, a that's kilocalorie. when you, if, when you do calories, now you use the metric measurement. Yeah, it's liter. This is the imperial approach to right, it. Right, right. And so if you switch over to electrical measurements, like a kilowatt hour, right, which yep. is the thousand watt, if you consume a thousand watts an hour, that's about 3,400 BTUs. Okay. Now, 590 quadrillion is a big enough number that it'll annoy most calculators. <laughs> It's just too big a number, right? Too big. Uh, you, if you go, uh, I could go terawatt hours. So 590 quadrillion BTUs is about 172,000 terawatt hours. You know, now I can wrap my mind around that number. That's still a really extraordinarily big number. <laughs> and it's also electricity. And I don't want to only talk about electricity because electricity is not the majority of energy consumption in the world. By far. So the measurement when you talk about this scale, the popular measurement, and it just speaks to how important oil is in the world, is the MTO, or okay. the million metric ton oil equivalent. Oh, wow. So if you take a million metric tons of oil, the amount of energy you could get from that, which is about 11 terawatt hours, the total energy consumption for the planet is... 14,868 mTO. Okay, that's a lot. Okay. Now let's break it down. Top five energy consumers in the world. Number one would be? Uh, it's either US or China. It's China. Yeah, they go back and forth. Well, then this is not back and forth anymore. China consumes uh, about a third more or half more energy than the US now. Now, admittedly, they have five times the population. So. They're still consuming a lot less energy per capita, but they consume about 3,100 mTO this year. Yeah, okay. The U.S. is about 2,200. Okay. Okay, making them the highest per capita consumers. But, you know, there's only 324 million Americans, so, you know, it's just a smaller number. Right. Uh, number three would be India at 882. Then Russia, again, you know, big population versus small population. Russia's at 718. And then Japan at 435. Okay. Japan is very small. Is this a per capita number? No, no. This is a total country number. It, huh. Japan's got 126 million people. It's not that small. Well, uh, geographically small, I yeah, mean. Yeah, it's a small, and it's interesting, right? A small piece of densely very populated dense. land yeah. that actually consumes quite a bit of energy. The most interesting thing, when I, and one of the reasons I include Japan in that equation, too, is they have virtually no native energy generation, right? They you know, import it all. They have to, right? It, it's it's the way that country works. So it's very interesting to look at that. Uh, who's getting power from where? One of the things that's interesting to talk about when you look at the overall energy consumption is that's in raw forms. And you lose a non-trivial amount of energy converting it into usable forms. So you extract a barrel of oil from the ground. You don't use that oil as is. You put a bunch of energy into it to turn it into product you can use. 
Yeah. Right. Okay. The same for coal. All the energy required to mine it, to move it, to burn it. If you do the math, it turns out about a third of all of the energy we extract from the planet is consumed, converting it into usable forms. It's, so it's not all that efficient in its raw form. It, it, all, it, never, it never is. And yeah. you have to do work on it from there. And it's you know an interesting conversation when we look at different power generation sources of how much energy does it take to get to a place where we can use it. Right. Now, what do we do with all this energy when we pull it out? So roughly 10,000 mTO is usable energy. Okay. And of that, how, what do we use it for? Believe it or not, only about 20% of the energy that we extract from the planet, we actually use, turn into electricity. Right. So while electrical consumption is, tends to be what you think about when it comes to power consumption, it's only about 20%. The single largest energy consumer on the planet is industrial uses. Yeah, I was going to say it was either industrial or, um, or, or transportation. Transportation's big too. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify Prefix, an insanely cool and transparent and free profiler for developers. It runs in the background and catches bugs, including exceptions that get caught and thrown away before anyone knows you wrote them. Get detailed traces of every request. There's no messy configuration or code requirements, and best of all, it's fast and transparent. Hey, did I mention it's free? And not free like a puppy. Free like beer. Download it now at prefix.netrocks.com. Transportation is about as big as electrical consumption. Hmm. So 40% of all of energy goes to industrial consumption, 20% to transportation, 20% to electrical, 10% to heating buildings. So when you talk about hmm. natural gas, coal, and oil just to heat buildings, it's about 10%, and then 10% for everything else. Yeah, okay. Okay. So... What consumes so much power when you talk about industrial energy? Well, the main one is fossil fuels, natural gas and coal, not necessarily for burning, but also, but for things like agricultural chemicals, hmm, okay. fertilizers and pesticides. If you talk about the single largest consumers of energy overall for the planet, it's agricultural chemicals. Wow. And then plastics, organic chemicals. After that, iron and steel. Right, and not, we, we'll, we'll never stop consuming coal because we need anthracitic coal to make steel. You know, there's plenty of evidence to see we're going to move away from coal as a power generation source over time. That uses different kinds of coals, lignite coals, and so forth. Yeah, but anthracitic coal for making steel—that's not stopping. Wow. Um, food processing represents a non-trivial amount of overall energy consumption. It's a couple percentage points of the entire world is getting food into edible condition. So yeah. It's really interesting math when you talk about an industrial energy consumption. On the transportation side, that's 20% of our total power consumption. 40% of that is gasoline. 40% mm -hmm. of that is diesel. 10% of that is jet fuel. And then 10% for everything else. Wow. That's eye-opening. Passenger transport is 63% of the energy consumption in transportation. Yeah, so I, I kind of knew that. And that's your airplanes and trains and things. Cars dominate. Cars. 70%. Hmm. Air travel, 20%. Buses and trains and everything else come in at 10%. So, you know, the believe me, the, the passenger car 
it represents a massive amount of the overall consumption of energy on the planet. Um, freight transport is 37%. So that's your truck, your heavy trucks, your ships, and all the lightweight trucks and so forth. They split evenly out about a third. A third is heavy trucks, your, 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 your great big, uh, semi trailers. And a third is shipping, which is almost all diesel. And then a third for everything else. Wow. When you talk, uh, but again, electrical consumption seems to be the most interesting thing. We expect to consume about 24,000 terawatt hours of power in 2016. It's not quite over yet. The number one electricity consumer on the planet, China. Yep. 5,000 of those terawatt hours are going to go to China. Uh, the U.S. comes in a close second at 3,800, and then it drops rapidly. India at about 1,000, Japan at about 900, Russia at about 900 as well. So, it, and that's partially population, that's partly high energy consumption, right? Yeah. And the U.S., Japan, and Russia consume substantially more energy per capita than China and India do, which have the very big populations, but that's where that number comes from. Okay. All right? Yeah. And... You know, back to the point from the listener about economic growth. The key determiner of GDP is energy consumption. You can map it. The numbers are very symmetrical. And there's an argument that the economic potential of the planet is only running about a third of its potential. There's a lot more economic potential untapped on the planet, and it's limited by the available energy for a given price. So if I hear this correctly, what you're saying is if we can become more energy efficient, we will actually be better economically. Absolutely. And we are. We yeah. have been. Like we talked about the oil crisis, right? Since the 1970s, since that oil crisis, we get more than twice the amount of utilization out of a given barrel of oil. And you can point that straight to regulations that require vehicles to be more energy efficient. Now that you know how large the number is for passenger cars when it comes to energy, you start to understand why fuel efficient cars are important. Yeah. That's, you literally talk about having the amount of gasoline that cars consume by pushing up these mileage numbers the way they have. And you don't do that because it's fun. You do that because your government is mandating it. Yeah. Uh, so this always comes back to GDP. And if, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the news about how the world's unraveling. But, you know, when you actually look at the math, world GDP is growing. And it has been steadily for 100 years. Right. On average, about 3%. Developed nations are growing slower, more like 2%. Mm -hmm. Emerging nations or developing nations, more like 4%. Okay. And part of that is also population growth. The fact that the developed world has much lower population growth, you know, in fact, for the most part, it is shrinking, with the exception of places like the United States and Canada, who, because of immigration, are actually sustaining their populations, their population growth is sta stable. Most of Western Europe, certainly Russia and Japan, their populations are not maintaining themselves. They do not have enough babies per capita to actually maintain the populations. Their populations are going to decline, and that impacts their GDP. Interesting. I mean, we kind of knew this, yeah. you know, in the back of our heads that, well, duh, you know, we save money by being more efficient and, you know, can help our economies, but you don't really think of it in term in those concrete terms. Yeah. And when you get, and you have to look at the numbers as a whole. Right. So birth rates are falling all over the world. And mm. the big impact on birth rates is education of mothers. That's yep. the thing that actually, you know, China's now lifted their one child policy. 
because it turns out it was a mistake. It's creating all kinds of its own problems. Yep. But in order to control population, they thought this was the way to go. What's interesting now that they've lifted that limit is that their birth rate's not really rising. Yeah. Because because of the access of information now that is educating mothers more, they have fewer children. Mm. And even in really barely developed parts of the world, like Western Africa, birth rates are falling. They're falling substantially. Yeah. And it's coming from the fact that we understand what clean water does to keeping your babies healthy. We understand what immunization does to keep your babies healthy, so forth. And so infant mortality drops dramatically through education. And the side effect of that is birth rates naturally fall. Mm. And so according to the World Health Organization, Population of the planet tops out shy of 9 billion around 2050 and then actually declines if you follow the delta of birth rates. The rate that birth rates are declining mm-hmm. shows that this is an overall fall. So population explosion in a lot of ways is ending, and it's going to affect the way GDP works as a whole. Hmm. Okay. How so? Well, because GDP's growth systems are all based on an endlessly growing population, and that's just not going to continue. I see. A, it's not sustainable, yep. but B, it's not happening. That's right. the, the side effect, and I blame this on the internet. The side effect <laughs> of the internet is the end of the population explosion. Well, because we educate ourselves, right? Yes. Yeah. And education actually ultimately saved lives all around. Hmm. But now it's time to talk about energies. Okay. But first, guess what time it is? It must be that happy time again. You got it. It's time to announce a new data type for .NET, INT-128, oh. <laughs> which is required to express 590 quadrillion. Because guess what? INT-64 uh, only goes up to a mere nine quadrillion. A mere, a mere nine. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should just get rid of the BTU. It's kind of a silly measure. Kind of silly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How many matches do you have in your house? <laughs> 590 quadrillion. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Arnaud Roca. Congratulations, Arnaud. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for you, sir, indeed. And uh, Arnaud just won the D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at Developer Express. If you don't know what we just did, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club coming right up here very soon. Very, very soon. Very soon. Like next Thursday, right? (laughs) Yep, a week. Yeah. And uh, so you still have time to get your name in. Go to .netrocks.com. Click on the big Get Free Stuff button. Join the fan club. Awesome. Yeah. What's next? So let's run down the various energy sources. Okay. And we might as well start with the fossil fuels because we've been talking about oil. And for better or worse, in 2016, 
that is still the single largest source of energy. Okay. It's about a third of all energy consumed is in the form of oil, about 97 million barrels of oil a day. Yeah. So breaking that down for every country is kind of tricky, but let me just do the U.S. numbers. So this is actually 2015 numbers where the U.S. consumed 7.13 billion barrels of oil. That's 20% of the world's oil consumption down by 5% of the population. That's a lot of smartphones. Here you go. <laughs> uh, half of that was gasoline. Hmm. And again, why is electric car a big deal? Yeah. Because this is a big number. Like it's, it's a huge portion of energy consumption. If it does nothing else, it diversifies the energy dependency, mm -hmm. right? You know, I mean, it, yes, it is converting fossil fuels into electricity, which runs your car. However, it's a diversification. Not everything is in one basket. And we've seen what not diversifying energy can do to a country. Venezuela, I'm looking at you. Yeah. You know? Venezuela has even more problems, but yes. yes. Uh, it is it is a significant part, and we have more control over how we can generate uh, electricity. I mean, the great thing about gasoline is its density of energy. Yeah, a, a, a pound of gasoline represents an incredibly dense source of energy that's naturally liquid at room temperature, stores extremely well. Like, there's a lot good to say about gasoline. Did you say a pound of gasoline? That's a very American, British kind of thing to say. Not a not a kilo. If you'd like me to talk in kilos, I can do well, that Well, the rest too. of the world does. Yeah. You might as well leave us out of it. One of my favorite stats around gasoline is if you take a cup of gasoline, once again, an imperial measurement, say, all right, 250 milliliters of gasoline, <laughs> and you light it on fire, it'll burn for more than an hour. Yeah. If you take that same gasoline and vaporize it into a contained space, it'll detonate with the force of a stick of dynamite. Wow, yeah. It's just a tremendously effective way to store energy. Hmm. And it's one of the reasons we keep using it. But it has consequences, and there's plenty of reasons for us to move away from it. Yeah. Um, interesting thing about the U.S. when it comes to oil, uh, they're the number two producer of oil today. Number That's one right. being Saudi Arabia. How close is the race, though? 565 million metric tons of oil extracted by the Saudi Arabia in 2016. And U.S.? 555. Oh, so it's tons. pretty close. So the Saudi Arabia is about 12% of oil production. The U.S. is about 11% of oil production. Wow. But the U.S. actually has laws in place to not sell oil to foreign countries. Yep. They actually consume it all themselves. And all of this oil production has happened in the past seven years. Yeah, five, seven years. Yeah. Yeah. 40% of that oil production is what they call unconventional sources, hmm. a.k.a. fracking. Yep. Well, okay, since you brought up the F word, let's uh, talk about that. It's a highly controversial thing because in the earliest days of fracking, uh, it, it there were a couple incidents where um, some chemicals got in drinking water. Yes. And there have been earthquakes. And speaking of chemicals in drinking water, my family, and I'm talking about my cousin, Right. Was one of the guys that you saw on the news. Pennsylvania. Lighting in Pennsylvania, lighting his uh, drinking water out of the tap on right. fire. No kidding. Yeah. And Ted maybe we should Franklin. do a whole show on fracking because it's an interesting conversation. Yep. His name was Ted Franklin. Well, there you go. Yep. His name is Ted Franklin. He's my cousin. He's my father's cousin. So that makes him my cousin. Right. And uh, yeah. So yeah, it is a very real problem. However, I want to know. 
is it getting better? Have they been taken to task? Have they been uh, regulated at all, the companies that are doing this? It's an interesting question. Again, we could do a whole show around this. The argument in favor of fracking, besides the fact that it's now made U.S. a major oil producer, Mm. is that where they're drilling for this oil, this tight oil, is well below what the water table is supposed to be. Right. But they have to go through the water table. Yeah, they go right through it, down below it. But they're also shocking the rock. They're expanding the rock to loosen the oil and the natural gas from it. And those shocks are causing earthquakes in yep. places like Oklahoma, where they've never had earthquakes before. Yep. And there's also a concern that that fracturing actually m- creates fissures from that lower rock into the water table. Right. Plus, we're also learning more about the water table. It's more complicated than we thought. There may be a tremendous amount of water deeper down in the crust of the planet. Hmm. So we don't understand all the physics around this, and we're learning more about it. In fact, that is a common theme you'll see over and over with energy. There's sort of a wave where you you come up with an energy source, and the energy sources are important. Coal predates oil. Right. We switched to oil because it had ad- advantages. Um, we switched to coal because burning wood became uneconomical, and we were running out of trees, right? Coal. I've actually found documents about coal being the savior of the forest. So initially, we have this enthusiasm around a new energy source, and we implement it a lot, and it becomes cost-effective because we get production and scale, and then we start allocating the real cost. Mm -hmm. Most production systems for energy, and all of the fossil fuels certainly fall in this category, get more expensive over time once you get to scale because it gets harder and harder to get the resource you're consuming. Mm. Not all energy works that way. And we get further down into energy production, you'll start to see there's other sources of energy where there isn't an ongoing consumption that becomes a serious cost. Yeah. So as we learn more about an energy source, we start assigning the real cost to it. And I think this is happening with fracking now as we're starting to see the impacts on environment and the impacts and conditions that matter here. That, but to your real question, which is, are they better regulated? I would say the answer is no. Yeah, that's the, the energy industry is remarkably secretive mm. about how fracking's working. And that, I think, is unfortunate that we do need a certain level of visibility and that it should be regulated. But uh, it certainly had a massive benefit for the U.S. And lots of other countries are looking at it, but afraid of it. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, by the way, number three energy producer when it comes to oil is Russia. The U.S. just recently exceeded Russia at 532 uh, million metric tons. Wow. And numbers fall off quickly after that. China's in the 200 range. Canada, also in the 200 range. So China and Canada both produce about the same amount of oil per year. Canada sells virtually all of their oil to the U.S. Mm. Although, interestingly... Uh, the U.S. just started exporting of oil only to Canada. Mm. But what they do is they export the crude product up to Canada, who refines it and ships it back to the U.S. as gasoline. Yeah, that's that's the way it goes. Well, it's weirder than that because you've heard of the oil sands up in Alberta, which is, you know, the big source of Canadian oil. Right. Canada does not have refineries for bitumen, which is what they actually get out of the oil sands. They okay. ship that to Louisiana for refining. Different refineries process different product. Right. So that's where those pipelines coming from Canada go down to Louisiana. It's to handle the bitumen. Right. And we won't even talk again about the uh, the train accidents and things that the oh, pipeline yes. would alleviate. 
That's a whole other set of worms. And again, could be another show entirely. Yeah. But we got to get off of oil. Because, okay. Uh, and I'm not saying get off of oil as a, as a planet, although there's plenty <laughs> of argument for that. There yeah. are many other power sources to talk about. Right. Uh, oil, of course, still huge. It's not, it's the energy consumption sort of stable. Uh, there really is no concern about peak oil. We found a lot more oil. We know a lot more about how to extract oil. There are huge reserves uh, off the coast of Brazil and in other areas uh, like the South China Sea. So there is more oil. We consume it more efficiently than ever before. We're trying to consume less of it, but we're not. Consumption's held steady in the 90-something million barrel levels for many years now. So mm. there's no new refineries being built. Uh, as we get more efficient, you know, at the same time that we're increasing demand for energy, we're also getting more efficient using it. So oil sort of holding steady. Mm. Um, it's coal where you're seeing coal's the only energy source that's not growing. Every energy source is growing. Is So is coal ebbing or is it staying the same? Still growing. It's growing by about a half a percent per year, but it's the lowest of the growth. I see. Uh, it is expected to be passed by natural gas by 2030 as uh, an energy as an electrical generation source we will always consume coal because we need it for uh steel manufacturing uh number one producer of coal china by yep. miles yep uh 3500 million metric tons per year the next largest is the us at 800 mostly in pennsylvania yep no well <laughs> west virginia you know, they, they, you know, we used to talk about the U.S. being the Saudi Arabia of coal. Now right. they're kind of being the Saudi Arabia oil, too. So, you know, my family's from Pennsylvania, as I said, and my father's yeah. family. And uh, there's an interesting town in Pennsylvania that has a lot to do with coal. It's basically one big coal fire. Right. Underground. It's called Centralia. And, and yeah, they had to evacuate. They had to evacuate the town. Uh, basically, uh, 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 somebody was out in their backyard one day and they noticed some smoke coming up from the ground. And sure enough, there was a fire underground that made its way up and uh, burned everything and they couldn't put it out because it started underground. And it's still burning. And it's still burning today. So yeah. think of that. It's crazy. It is crazy. And there are there are coal fires burning all over the U.S. actually. And they've yeah. got them in Montana and North Dakota and like... It's an, it's an interesting problem. And obviously, there's a huge amount of pressure to move away from coal. It has serious impacts on the environment. Right. Uh, they, they, the U.S. actually passed regulations. I don't know how much longer these regulations are going to survive. So mm. that in 2016, you must have carbon sequestration as part of your coal power plant for any new plants being built. Right. And the consequence of that has been no new plants being built. Right, exactly. Uh, but I think the biggest reason that new coal plants aren't being built is because of natural gas. Yeah. So That's, natural gas is now the fastest growing fossil fuel, growing at about 2% per year. Yep. Uh, and it's uh, it's a, a very efficient source. Keeping natural gas in its natural form, which is literally piping it around, makes sense. Uh, it becomes a lot less uh, effective as an energy source when you liquefy it. It takes a lot of energy to liquefy natural gas. Right. But you need to do that to be able to ship it. Right. Um, and people do it, right? The when the Japanese, after Fukushima happened, they shut down all their nuclear power plants. They did not have enough energy. They quickly built some gas-fired plants and bought liquid natural gas on the market at high prices, largely from Russia, mm. to keep the lights on. So what you'll find in America is, and probably other places too, is that there are natural gas pipes in the ground that 
go out to the population, but they only go so far away from cities and major ports. Sure. And then they just sort of stop. So this house that I've bought uh, a few years ago, and you've been to my house, Richard, when I got there, I was very happy because there's uh, gas ranges, but it's not natural gas, it's propane. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. So I looked into the difference between propane and natural gas, and propane is more energy dense. Yes, it's a refined natural gas. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and But you got to put it in a tank. And the reason is that we don't get natural gas is because we're literally like 100 feet from the last house ah, on the line. sucks. Yeah, it does. But it turns out that we're like at the end of the line for a lot of other services too. So <laughs> we are officially in the redneck zone. Nice. I'm just saying. Yeah. Uh, and the U.S. is the number one producer of natural gas, 770 yeah. billion cubic meters per year. Do we need an int 64 for that or an int 32? I'm not it's sure. It's only a billion. Oh, you can okay. do it in 64 with that. <laughs> and a, and, a, and a, a BCM, a billion cubic meters, is roughly 0.9 of an mTO. Okay. So it's pretty close, you know, near around the same measurement. Uh, Russia's number two at 650 billion cubic meters. You know, they, they've been strangling, uh, Eastern Europe by controlling their, their gas supplies. Right. Uh, and then it drops off quickly. Iran, Qatar, Canada's at like 160, you know, but the two big producers are U.S. and Russia. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's where your natural gas gets turned into plastics. It gets turned into propane. Uh, it gets liquefied. There's a lot of different choices there. Mm -hmm. That's the end of the fossil fuels, right? Oil, coal, natural gas. Okay. Um, let's talk nuclear. Nuclear. Uh, so there's only so many nuclear power plants in the world. The U.S. is sort of at the top. Uh, they have 99 operational reactors uh, generating about 797 terawatt hours per year. It's about 20% of the power consumption in the United States is from nuclear. Okay. Um, France, with 58 reactors, actually 76% of the electricity for France comes from nuclear. It's, they don't have as many plants, but they are highly dependent on it because they don't have a lot of other energy sources. Right. Uh, Japan has the third largest number of reactors. They have 43. Hmm. But in 2016, they only generated about a half a percent of their power. Yeah. You remember why? Sure do, yeah. They shut down all the plants. They've now they started turning down. some of them back on, the ones that were not affected by the Fukushima crisis. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's hard for them to get away from this power. I Germany mean, went all nuke-free, didn't they? They're trying to. So back in 2011, after the Fukushima incident, they said they want to shut down all the nuclear power plants. And they shut down eight of the 17. They want the rest off by 2022. Okay. What they, what they really did was went hard into solar. Um, which is, you know, substantial and important. In fact, they're not alone. Uh, Belgium is phasing out uh, nuclear power. So is Spain and so is Switzerland. And there are lots of countries that don't have nuclear power at all. Canada does. They prefer the heavy water reactor design. There are 10 different generation four reactor designs currently in development right now. Wow. And uh, I'll send a link. Uh, I'll include a link to this. We could do a whole show just on these new reactor designs. Sure we could. Um, only three of these designs are actually under construction or in operation, and they are all water-based reactors. So mm. our molten salt reactors that we love, just not getting a lot. They're not that far along. So mostly pressurized light water, which is the normal reactor design. There's a couple of heavy water reactor designs. There's one boiling water design, which is semantically different. Interesting. 
But there are other ways to make nuclear power work. And you've heard, if you've been listening to Geek Huts, you know about uh, molten salt reactors. reactors. Molten salt reactors. Exactly. Yeah. So there's only two actually being constructed. I know or that. Or at least serious about construction. We talked about a thorium reactor being constructed. That's a test reactor, but I'm talking about power production. Okay. So the Chinese are building a pebble bed reactor. All it's right. a very different design. It's supposed to be operational next year in 2017 at about 200 megawatts. Wow. There are two molten salt designs. One is in France and is purely a conceptual design. There's nothing real there yet. But there is an experimental reactor made in Canada called by a company called Terrestrial Energy who have raised n- several million dollars, about $17 million so far, to build a, a prototype 80-megawatt thermal reactor. That's about 33 megawatts of electricity. Okay. Their point in their design is that it's a factory-buildable thing, so you don't have to build it on site. Mm. They should be able to scale up as high as 600 megawatts. And they're far enough along that the U.S. Department of Energy is is offering them financing for a 190-megawatt version. Wow. And they are working with Oak Ridge Labs, which in Tennessee, those are the folks that built the only real molten salt reactor in the world. So there mm. is something happening there, but it's I, I think it's important to realize how much behind this is. Yeah. That if we're going to build reactors today, then these Gen 4 reactors don't have passive shutdown modes and so forth, but they're still pressurized water, so they mm. still have those, tr- those problems. Um, nuclear is a very difficult option, and, and from its cost perspective, it's very high, and I'll talk about costs in a bit. Okay. Uh, we got to keep moving because we're now can talk about the renewables. All right, let's number do it. one renewable energy source in the world. I'm thinking solar, hydroelectric. Oh, renewable, still considered renewable, and we get more energy from it than solar. Yes, when in the renewable category, it's hydropower, which is you know dams with turbines, right. is sixteen percent of the total energy generation in the world. You know, I knew that when I visited the Ho- the Hoover Dam, but right. you know, there's been such a boom in solar. I would have thought that that would have outdone it. And I, I totally reasonable for you to think that we need to talk about solar because it is growing, but it's just the numbers are so much smaller, mm. right? But mm. when you talk about renewable energy, hydropower falls into it, and it represents seventy percent of all into the energy it. generation around renewable. Falls into it, ha <laughs> ha. You yeah, said nice. falls. <laughs> uh, Ch- China is a number one uh, hydroelectric power generator at about one. 1,100 terawatt hours per year. Wow. Brazil's number two at 382. Canada's number three at 375. The U.S. comes in at 251. Wow. So, and again, very dispersed. Everybody generates power differently. Uh, An area that most people aren't aware of is like, there's a lot of research and development still going on in hydropower. Turbine efficiency has more than doubled over the past couple of decades. So they squeeze a lot more power out of any given quantity of water with modern dams. You know, I, I love the idea that gravity and water just make electricity. Yes. But, you know, gravity is obviously the real thing here. What if we could harness some other materials? Like, I'm thinking super balls. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know how cost effective it would be. I mean, one of the big challenges that hydropower has is climate change. Yeah. There is less water behind the dams these days. Yeah. Uh, and dams actually cost money to maintain. In, in some cases, especially in the U.S., they're actually removing old dams. Hmm. Um, where hydropower gets really interesting is smaller turbines, run-of-the-river style plants, are cropping up all over the world. As we go into a more distributed power model, the idea of building multi-gigawatt 
hydroelectric dams is sort of obsolete. Mm. It makes more sense to have a local megawatt power source that simply takes water out of a river, runs it through a turbine, and puts it back in the river. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and we've done a whole show on hydropower. We also talked about tidal power and those other things, which the numbers are so small on those, they're not even worth mentioning. They don't register. about overall power generation. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Now, let's get into the sexy. Okay. Talk about wind and solar. Wind. So I remember a long time ago, we talked about wind and, and I thought it was this great thing that was going to save us. And it turns out that it's really expensive to get electricity from wind. It has, it, it needs a lot of maintenance. It's a lot of moving parts. Yep. The most efficient designs are, uh, uh, high, are hard to take care of. Offshore is four or five times more expensive than onshore for obvious reasons. Uh, that being said, because of the increased demand, your manufacturing methodologies have improved in efficiency. And in, since 2008, the average cost of wind power per megawatt has dropped by 35%. Wow, that's interesting. It's good numbers. Uh, they're also getting better at building larger towers with larger rotors, which run at lower wind speed right. and actually need fewer mills. So there's less stuff to maintain. Yep. But- when you talk about power generation, again, China comes in number one with about a third of all the wind power in the world at only about 145 gigawatts installed. Huh. Uh, the U.S. is number two at 74, Germany number three at 45. Hmm. These are just so much smaller numbers than other power sources. Right. And that's wind. Yeah. Uh, but it, it continues to improve. And again, localized power generation, and we can do a whole show just on some of the modern small-scale microgrid wind turbine systems that are out there. I also got to imagine that materials that last longer and wear less, like carbon fiber, could be used in windmills. Absolutely help. And at, yeah. at, at what what cost, right? We well, always you know, have to deal with this cost measurement. Well, but it's really about the cost amortized over the life of the windmill, isn't it? Yeah. You know, so if you have something that's going to last four or five times as much, four or five times longer than standard materials you're actually, you're, you might actually be ahead of the game. Right. So wind power is roughly 2% of the power generation on the planet. And solar's half that. It's less than 1% of that all the power. That is really, really interesting. As much as they like to tell you about solar and you see government subsidies and pe people putting panels on their houses and all of that, as much as all that happens, it's only 1%. So far. Now, it's still a massive growth. And costs have dropped stunningly. We talked about a 35% price decrease in wind since 2008. Solar's dropped, photovoltaic solar, not thermal solar, but photovoltaic solar's dropped by 80% since yeah. 2008. And that's a big deal, right? Uh, and one of the reasons is that it doesn't have a consumable, right? It, other than the materials to make it. So basically, once you build the plant, you're done. You have to keep it clean. It has a long lifespan. They do wear out, believe it or not. Solar panels wear out. Mm. Um, they are... As the cost is starting to drop, we don't have to optimize them near as much. So it used to be that it, we put these solar panels on control arms that actually always pointed at the sun to maximize yield. Right. We're not doing that. It's too expensive and it needs maintenance. Right. Yeah. In Germany, and I would lay this flatly at the feet of the Germans, the Germans consume so much solar power that they, you know, they actually hit a point where they're, the, the entire country at certain points of the day is running on solar power. Mm-hmm. Which is good, but it's just recognized the Germans don't generate that much electricity. They, they're the number two generator of solar power at about 40 gigawatts, which is about 
roughly 20% of all the solar in the world. China's number one at about 22%, right? Mm -hmm. 43 gigawatts. Mm -hmm. And Japan's number three, the US is about 26 gigawatts. Hmm. It's, it's still not that huge amount of power overall. The crazy part is the Germans have gotten to a point with solar power where actually pointing at the sun all the time means that they get peak power in the middle of the day where they don't want it. Right. You need it at night. Yeah. Well, what they're also doing is doing separate panels, some facing east and some facing west. Huh. Which seems crazy, right? But what it does is it smooths out power generation. So they get more power at the beginning of the day and more power later in the day, and the center's not as peaked. And it's less expensive because the panels have gotten so much cheaper, it actually makes sense to put in panels that aren't needed as much. So you don't peak when you don't need it. And you don't have to deal with the motors to keep it constantly pointed. That makes sense. And, you know, it seems like a lot of these timing issues can be solved with uh, temporary battery storage. Well, and we sh we already did one storage show. Maybe we should do another. Storage yeah. is just not even on the radar. It's not possible to store power efficiently. Mm. There is another aspect of this, which is what do we do with the excess power we're generating, right? Yeah. And understand that's a normal problem. In the right. big power plant model, we're always generating enough power for peak. We almost never vary our power generation, which means most of the time we're wasting power. Yeah. Uh, it's only at peak that we're actually consuming all of it. And so one of the interesting conversations is, should we use our excess electricity generation, especially when it's solar excess, to do stuff like water desalination? Yeah. It's a way to capture energy into a useful form, non-salinated water. Yeah. Here's the bigger thing. When you're building power plants, you have to project five years in the future. Right. right. It takes time to build power plants. Sure. And so the companies that are building these power plants today are bidding on projects that are going to be built over the next five years. And their bidding rates these days are getting incredibly low. So an example of this is in Dubai, where they built a power plant there that was relatively small, about 200 megawatts of solar, right? And Dubai being a huge oil producer, they're not all that interested in solar, but they got a lot of sunlight. Um, they're now going to up in September of 2016, they bid to upgrade that to 1.2 gigawatts. That's a lot of solar panels. Wow. And they bid it at $23 a megawatt hour. Holy crap. That is like two cents a kilowatt. That is incredibly cheap power. And what they're counting on is this thing they call Swanson's Law. It's almost like Moore's Law, but it applies to solar panels. And it says that huh. for every doubling of volume of manufacturing of solar panels, the price drops by about 20%. Wow. Or that the cost roughly half every 10 years. And so when you talk about a five-year delivery time, you have to estimate this substantial decrease in cost. Mm -hmm. So while solar panels are not dominating power generation today, the price range that we're talking about per megawatt hour is competitive with the cheapest power in the world. Yeah. In yeah. fact, it's competitive with existing power plants. That's fascinating. I want to talk about one more power source, and then we've got to talk about the levelized cost of electricity. Okay. The last power source. What have we missed? Let's see. Wind, solar, nuclear. We have missed fusion. Well, fusion isn't real, so we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> How about magic? <laughs> How about geothermal? Yeah, of course. Remember geothermal? Of course. And geothermal's tiny. Yeah. And it's you know, and there's other power sources smaller than this. The la next smallest 
is geothermal. Geothermal, you- I see as a sort of um, uh, a, a way to just mitigate regular day-to-day costs of cooling and heating, right? Like for on a on a smaller scale, not something that's energy production per se, but you know, for example, and I talked about this in the geothermal show. My uncle has a system in his house where he's got two wells, an electric pump that pumps water from one to the other. And as the water is going, you know, through this pipe, a fan blows across it and you either get air that's warmer than your current, uh, you know, your current home or cooler than your, right. your current that's a heat temperature. Pump. Yeah. And the only, the only thing that it costs is the cost to pump and the fan. Yeah, that's some electricity consumption. Yeah. And the reality with geothermal is you're pump, all you're doing is that same thing, but pumping deeper to you hit, you hit ground that's hot enough that it actually flashes the water to steam and sends it ripping back up the pipes to spin a turbine. Right. So you really have to have places in the earth where there is hot water available closer to the surface, right. like Iceland. Yep. Iceland is one. Uh, the largest geothermal power generator in the world, the U.S., California. Wow. Right? Along those fault lines, they've drilled a bunch of geothermal plants, about three and a half gigawatts. Because what could go wrong? Well, that's the interesting problem, right? And I think we talked about this in the geothermal show. Yeah. You don't know until you've actually drilled the lines and flashed steam a bunch of times if it's going to keep working. Right. On the other hand, the potential energy here, because it's got no, it's got no waste, it's got no output. If we could get better at this... There's an argument that says we're only using about 7% of the potential geothermal power available based mm. on our current technology. We could be doing a lot more with this, and it's in really inexpensive electricity. Hmm. And that leads to this conversation called the levelized cost of electricity. Okay, what's that? So this is about being able to compare the prices of electricity taking in all costs, the cost of construction, the cost of materials, the consumables, the operation, and so forth. And it takes in enough factors that it can, you always end up with arguments. When I yeah. compare different reports on on uh, levelized cost of electricity, there's lots of complaints like, what if interest rates change? What about subsidies? Those yeah, sorts of things. Right. And there's also a big conversation now about pollution impacts. Hmm. You know, coal appears cheap until you start putting in stuff like carbon sequestration and environmental impact and carbon taxation. Hmm. You know, the, that's what bumps the prices up. Mm. So looking at the U.S. EIA report for 2016 that talked about building plants over five years, so coming out, they'd be open by 2022, Mm. existing coal plants currently run roughly $40 a megawatt hour for power generation, or four cents a kilowatt hour. Right. But because of the regulations for carbon sequestration, any new plant you build would bump that up to $95. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot. Right. Existing natural gas plants run at about $35. Huh. And new ones at 56, which is why you're seeing natural gas so popular. Right. It's for new power plants, it's some of the most inexpensive power you can build. And I mentioned geothermal, even though it's a tiny number, because it's even cheaper at about $40 for a new plant. So hmm. if we could get better at geothermal, it's it's one of the areas we could be researching. Um, and this is where stuff like nuclear falls over. Existing nuclear power plants are very inexpensive to run at about $30 per megawatt hour. But any new construction, because of regulations and requirements around it, and I'm not saying those are bad things, it puts yeah. it up at about $100 a megawatt hour. And that's just too expensive. 
Now, the important one when you get to wind and solar PV, and these were the numbers really hard to extract, it we're coming in around $50 a megawatt hour in 2016 for wind, which makes it totally competitive with coal and natural gas. Uh, and photoelectric, about yeah. $60. Wow. And that's a very controversial number because there's people who are saying it's $30. Right, because it's subsidized, right? Well, because it's hard to judge how quickly prices are going to continue to fall. Oh, you okay. follow Swanson's law, and it says five years from now, that thing should be about $30. But uh, the projections don't necessarily work that way. And just to round out everything there, hydroelectric current operating costs run about $35 a megawatt. Any new construction, and there's very little new construction in hydroelectric because there's just not a lot of places left, uh, about $63 a megawatt hour. Hmm. So... Because of regulations for stuff like carbon sequestration, coal is basically off the map now for new power. Wow, yeah. Natural gas, totally known technology, and you're seeing this. It's being built everywhere. Nuclear's price itself out of the market. It's not likely to be used much. Geothermal is not well enough understood, but it should be spent more time on because it has huge potential. But mm. wind and solar are now coming into the same price range as natural gases and hmm. so the argument now going forward is you don't have to do this for the right reasons you can do it just for the dollars yeah that it looks solar photovoltaic with its complete lack of moving parts with its just put it down leave it in place keep it clean that's it good for 30 years hmm. is almost impossible a power system to argue with today yeah. So while it isn't winning in 2016 yet, right. it's gonna. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, it's the sun is the most abundant resource we have of energy, isn't it? Um, it's only 1,363 watts per square meter. Yeah, right so now. It, well, that's never going to change, right? That's how oh. much sunlight actually hits the planet. Oh, that's what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. So it's not incredibly dense. Gasoline is way denser. Mm. However... It's remarkably common. But, and by the way, you don't need to be in a desert to use solar. Right. Right. Plants have been converting sunlight into, into food on all sorts of places further north than the equator. Mm -hmm. In fact, solar panels' biggest problem is they overheat. Right. So, so what they use in hot climates is mirrors to reflect them into a collector, right? That's the solar thermal. And I didn't mention them because, A, they're very rare. There's relatively few of them. And, B, they're actually quite expensive power. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in very hot climates, they work better. S photovoltaics make more sense f off of the equator, further yeah. north and south. Interesting. Uh, and as the prices are getting where they are, and this is where you look at a company like uh, Elon Musk's Solar City, mm -hmm. where they're making roofing tiles that actually collect solar power, right. combined with the new Powerwall batteries. Right. We literally could talk about houses starting to go off the grid as they get more energy efficient because the panels are so cheap. Pretty so, cool. Combine that with some LED lighting and more efficient uh, appliances, and you might actually be able to do it. I think we're there. I think this is the year. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it now is like, I think coming out of 2016, looking at these very conservative numbers from the USEIA, even they are saying wind and solar are now competitive with our fossil fuel productions, if not cheaper. Wow. That's fascinating, Richard. And it gives me hope. I'm excited. Buddy. No two ways about it. Yeah, I can tell. And now we all are too. Thank you very much. You bet, bud. 
All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes,